1: Good afternoon. So first of all, I apologize, several of you asked if I would record all the sessions so that you could have some of the talks uh, to listen to after, which get posted online on the Center of Gravity website and um, some of the guided meditations. But as usual, I I often forget to turn the machine on, so they're lost in your body somewhere. (laughs) And hopefully, if you... And this is actually a nice way of listening to the talks, which I think I I, I mentioned earlier, that, that if you listen with your whole body, then whatever's important stays there. It it will find a place inside your elbow and in your kidneys, and then in a few years, when your breath starts flowing there, it will wake up those seeds and they'll flower and say, Oh, that's what he talked about nine years ago. This has been a really wonderful day and a half. This is actually, for me, this is my fifth day in a row, teaching all day. And uh, so my friends call, are you okay? I saw on your website you're teaching fine. (laughs) But actually, uh, those are people who don't know what I actually do for my job, which is just I get to sit here with you. Sometimes I finish the day tired because somehow, at some level, it's holding the energy of this room. But mostly, I I finish the day quite invigorated. And um, um, then I have a couple of days off. And then I go do this in Calgary for four days. And then I have a couple days off. And then I go to New York City for five days. And um, sometimes I I go to bed at night and reflect on what I do for a career. And and I can't believe people come. (laughs) I've had this strange life where since I was a kid I've been thinking about these things and meditating on these things and hanging out on the railroad tracks and having imaginary conversations with Jack Kerouac about these things. And it's amazing that people actually show up. Um, And it's amazing to me in Toronto that over the years I'm seeing the same faces over and over again. Um, That that means a lot to me because you see that someone takes up a practice, and then uh, it, it does something in, in their life. And this is what's called, traditionally it's called sangha. And I think most people understand sangha as community, which is how many people you've got in a room determines the, the quality of your sangha. But the word sangha actually means um, having confidence in another person's practice. So this means that sangha happens even just with one other person. If there's one person you know, and you have confidence in their practice, that means that you, you see how the practice is working in their life. That's considered community. Because when you have confidence that the practice is working for them, then it, 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 it feeds back into your own faith in your own practice and I know for me this is the case, that, 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 that sometimes some teaching is philosophical to me, and then I see how it gets lived in a life, someone else's life, and then it inspires me, it kind of sets the bar, in a way, so that it, it inspires us to, to then li- live a life that is so creative, um, or, or creative enough that it can, that it can work with... Um, the, the common neuroses that, that we deal with. Uh, sometimes the way you can see a practice is working in someone's life is they're less neurotic than you.
0: <laughs> and
1: that's like, check. <laughs> I'm going to hang out with them. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so um, there were some really good questions at break and yesterday. One question that I liked uh, Karen mentioned, which was um, define meditation in 20 words or less. Um, She didn't ask that, but she heard someone ask that. And Araya had a very good question yesterday, which was, um, if the the self is fluid and elastic, and, and we're constantly changing ourselves and adapting ourselves, sometimes the task is to stretch oneself outside of one's limits and how we can learn a lot by being stretched but sometimes how do you know when you've stretched too far, especially over time where that can become hurtful um, and I don't know if you want to add anything to that but, but I think that that's what you, what you said yeah,
0: uh, the other thing that occurs to me is that the place where I'm most susceptible to that is is in a sense ironically where I have brought some awareness to my own reactivity. Yeah. So, um, knowing you know over a lifetime that I can see a certain area of reactivity. Yes. Um, that's the place where, perhaps properly, I know I need to stretch. Mm-hmm. But also then I'm, I'm more susceptible to stretching beyond what is not harmful because I don't really mm. trust my own judgment in that area because yeah. I
1: know I tend to be reactive. Yeah. And that makes sense. Last night I, I went for a long walk and I was pondering this question and I had two thoughts. The first thought is, I think that this is the question I think about more than any other question, mm-hmm. which was, it, it is how, how we can stretch ourselves um, and where the limits are. You know where 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 we lose ourselves in the process. Um, So I want to tie this in. I don't know if it will work. I I learned I went to a talk uh, two weeks ago that Yvonne Rayner gave at OCAD um, uh, about uh, Susan Sontag's term that she used in art theory called radical juxtaposition. Love this term. Uh, Radical juxtaposition is when you take two streams that don't seem to have anything to do with each other, and you juxtapose them, and, and the clash or the collage creates a third stream, something something new. That's what I'm going to try and do with your questions. It, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Um, the, the word uh, for meditation um, that's, that's usually used is bhava or bhavana. Which, which literally means uh, to feel something ecstatically, or it's a verb, Bava is a verb, which also means to become, which at first might seem like a puzzling way to think about meditation, to, to become. We usually think meditation is to not do something, to, to not be reactive. But yet, to, to not do something is an action. And that action has a consequence. And that consequence is a creation of a new kind of groove. So that even what seems like passivity, or even what seems like stillness, is actually, and we know this neurologically, is actually still a working of oneself into a a more flexible and free individual. And so it's interesting to think about meditation as a practice of becoming, not as a practice of becoming a thing. Again, we're not attached to what we're coming into, but just to, to understand the self as a, as a process of becoming, as an art project, as a, a, in, in the same way that a novel is not ever finished. A writer writes a novel, and the novel then um, is semi-completed, by the reader But then the reader reads the novel again and completes it in a different way, and then lives a life where the novel offers some wisdom, and then other people uh, work at the novel in their lives. And so, so nothing's ever really finished. A self is never really finished. And likewise, to tie this into Uriah's question is that the same is true with anything. So, for example, right now it's spring. You can't pick one moment in spring that is like the platonic ideal of spring. Spring is so many different things, right? Spring is not just the blooming of cherry blossoms, which are almost done now. They were very early this year. Spring is also the feeling one gets. And not... not you know, the, the springy feeling we all get when you actually see people walking around with skin again, you know. Um, there are so many levels to spring, and you can't rush spring. So some of us want summer, but, but spring ha- is, a, is, a, is a process, and though we have a name that encapsulates spring, it has edges to it, right? And then if you look closely at the edges they don't have any edges. So, so there seems to be a process that has some structure, but the structure itself is also a kind of process. And we can look at other processes like this, too. The mourning process, or grief, is a lot like this, right? It seems that, that there is a process of letting go and of mourning that happens when we lose something that we have to go through. And it has a time period, and it has phases, Many people have mapped out what those phases are. And we know that when we interrupt the mourning process, it often starts back at the beginning again. And you you have to go through this process, or it gets subverted and perverted in all kinds of um, inefficient uh, ways. Um, The same is true with the self. The self is a process, and yet the process also has limits. It's, it's, it's a relative functioning process. And yet, to have a process, we also have to have limits to the process. Uh, Shunru Suzuki, the great Zen teacher, has a famous saying that I love repeating, which is, um, if you want to control a cow, give it a large pasture. This is also a lesson in parenting teenagers. If you want to control a cow... Give it a large pasture. If you try and take a cow and tie it to your fence, you'll, you'll lose your fence. If you take a cow and don't give it a large pasture, you just give it uh, complete freedom in the wild, you'll lose your cow. So the idea of having a pasture is there's an area cleared out, and it has limits. It has borders. And I think it's really important to remember this with the self. Um, some people engage in spiritual practice where they deny that they have a self. They they don't take care of themselves, a- and they learn this teaching thing: I don't have a self, and they become selfless. Selfless in a way that over ten or twenty years starts to create anger, resentment, and apathy because they're not fully living in their experience with likes and dislikes. So the, the point here is that although the self is flexible, it really has limits. And you have to take care of the limits of the self. If you have a teenager, you have to give him or her a very large pasture. But there is a fence And they'll only feel the freedom if there is a fence. And then once in a while, they'll hop the fence so that they recognize that there is a fence. And so if we don't take care of ourselves, then um, we can't recognize that the self is fluid. Because if you don't take care of yourself, then other parts of yourself start to harden, and then you don't experience yourself as fluid and as spontaneous. So, so I want to read to you uh, the last words of the Buddha, because he nails it. Uh, this is the last thing he says. Um, the Buddha has an attendant who is kind of his good friend, best, best friend, Ananda. And um, I I think I'll just one tangent I'll make here is that I've never connected with the Buddha's life. I I really like reading about the Buddha, but there's not much in his life that feels related to my life. Um, I don't come from the family he comes in. I don't have the rural background he has. There aren't details about his character that have that much relevance to me. And likewise with Jesus. I I, I read about Jesus. It's a beautiful, ideal human being. But somehow it it doesn't really reflect my experience. But Ananda, which is like the Buddha's right-hand guy, is fallible, makes so many mistakes, often doesn't understand. He's the only person in the close circle of the Buddha that doesn't get enlightened in the Buddha's lifetime, which is helpful to know. Um, maybe that's why I downplay enlightenment. Um, so Ananda is really upset that the Buddha's dying, he's crying, and many times the Buddha over a few days is telling Ananda, you know, you know, don't cry. This is this is this is impermanent. This this life is impermanent. Uh, but then right at the end, the Buddha gives Ananda this teaching. Uh, part of which I think you might have heard because it's a famous passage. Therefore, Ananda, you should live with yourself as an island, with yourself as a refuge, with no other refuge, with the Dhamma, or, or this path, as an island, the Dhamma as a refuge with no other refuge. This is kind of puzzling, because in the Buddhist context, usually we hear about taking refuge, and you take refuge in the Sangha, in the community, in the Buddha, and in the Dharma, in the teachings, or, or the law of how things are. But he's saying to Ananda, Ananda, be an island unto yourself, and that's where you take refuge. And don't take refuge anywhere else. Another puzzling thing about that, if you think you know something about Buddhism, is that the Buddha says, take refuge in yourself. Yourself is an island. So for those of you who think that the Buddha taught that there's no self, here, here's an example of him saying, take care of yourself. Take care of yourself as you would take care of an island. For any of you who spend time on islands, I've spent a lot of time in Crete. In Crete, it's the, the land on the shore is changing all the time, especially on the south side of Crete. It's very windy. And so every year you go there, the landscape is totally different. The rocks look different. Um, In fact, it's kind of funny sometimes to look at old photographs and paintings of the coastline of Crete, because you you look with your eye and compare it, and it it changes every year. So even though the self is an island, the island is being formed all the time by the weather, by emotions, and so on. So again, to, to keep bringing back this point, there is a self but it's changing. And you can only recognize the fact that it's changing because there are some qualities that continue over time. But those qualities also then change. You see? How does a monk live like this? He's saying to Ananda, how does a monk live like this? Or you, how do you live like this? Here, Ananda, listen closely. Here, Ananda... A monk (laughs) abides contemplating the body as a body. The body as a body, earnestly, clearly aware, mindful, putting aside all hankering and fretting for the world. And likewise with regard to feelings and mind. Not fretting about your mind not fretting about your feelings. He's not saying you rise above your feelings. Do you hear him saying that? Does he say you leave your body? No. Does he say you stop feeling? No. Does he say you don't have a self? No. He says you have a self. It's unique. You take care of it. You have feelings, and you don't fret about them. Could you imagine this? Could you imagine having a feeling and not fretting about it? Has anyone ever tried
0: this?
1: (laughs) So in a way, Ananda's saying, give me some, like, how do I live? How do I live your teachings? Saying, take care of yourself. You are the refuge. The reason why I meditate is because when I sit down... I feel like I'm returning to what's most primary. And in returning to what's most primary, I, I find that it, it builds a resource. I shouldn't even say builds a re- It rediscovers. I, I rediscover what I forget every morning when I wake up. Every morning I wake up and I forget that awareness <laughs> is there like a natural resource. And some people say, why do you practice? And the reason why you practice is because you forget. And (laughs) and then so you practice, and then the more you practice, the less you forget. And you, you do this by taking refuge in yourself. And those who now, in my time or afterwards, live this way, so those who in, in the Buddha's lifetime or after live like this, um, they, they become awake if they desire to learn. So there's a condition. Uh, you, you only will become awake if you desire to learn. And then, which is my favorite line, conditioned things break down. Tread the path with care. So we've already learned yesterday that everything is conditioned. Everything you see is conditioned. It's not only conditioned by you seeing, but the the color is conditioned by the fabric and by time and by light. Everything we hear, feel, taste, touch, smell, think is conditioned. Yes? And because it's conditioned, it breaks down. It's unreliable. It's provisional. It's evanescent. It's in flux. You don't need a physicist to tell you the floor is impermanent. We know that this floor is changing molecularly, but we also know that when we come back here in a few centuries, well, when we come back here in 20 years, this building's going to be like a historical, uh, I don't know, Our architecture students will come here to, to study uh, this era. <laughs> um, But probably in 200 years it won't be here. Or 400 years it won't be here. Um, So everything that's conditioned breaks down. So don't take refuge, don't take refuge in those things. But yet, taking refuge in the self, the self, small s, is also conditioned. This is kind of puzzling. So, so we take refuge in the fact that everything is impermanent, and then out of impermanent conditions we carve a path. We're not carving a path by creating an idea of a divine that is going to carry us through the world and secure us a better birth and take care of us. We're, the, Buddha, the Buddha does not talk that way. He's saying we're, we're carving a path out of these conditions. These conditions are divine. Everything you feel is sacred. Who are you to say that one feeling is sacred and another feeling is not? And, and the Buddha is saying, you know, tread this path with care. What the Buddha does not do is put his hand on Ananda's forehead giving him, you know, shakti pot or whatever and say now you are enlightened. The Buddha is not saying I am a god and I'm going to enlighten you. If you think you are Ananda, I like to think of myself as Ananda. The lesson here is also that nobody can do this for you. When I first started teaching, I, I just didn't have any money. So I had this idea for a, for, for a business where I would practice for people who don't have time to practice. So like CEOs, um, dictators, you know, people, people who just didn't seem to have the time. George Bush didn't, doesn't seem to have the time to practice. And so I'll do the practice for you, and then you pay me. And then you'll somehow receive the benefit like psychic air miles or something. Um, anyways, that, that never came through. The point is is that you, other people can't do this for you. you. You have to put in the time, and you have to sit with your particular turbulence. And in that way, you become an island and a refuge. And then our relationships become much more um, alive. Because when we have that internal relationship with our own uh, self, um, then we can more clearly be in relationship with other people, and hopefully with other people who have a relationship with the depths of themselves. That's not usually how humans work. Usually, we choose people who are as unconscious as we are <laughs> for whatever reason, like as undifferentiated. I think this is probably the psychology of codependence, right? <laughs> is, is you you tend to choose somebody who 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 has the same kind of relationship with their inner life that you do and, and Those are the first three marriages. The, the rest of them are, are really...
0: Um,
1: or maybe they're just as devastating, but you get used to it. <laughs> but in order to really have relationship, we have to have a relationship with ourselves. Taking refuge... Of, this is not the popular way of talking about the self in a spiritual context, which is that the self is this thing to get rid of. This makes no sense. I, I know people who have no sense of self, and they're institutionalized. And they should be institutionalized, because, because they, they, they can't negotiate self and not self. You see, so, so there's a spectrum here, which is what the Buddha is articulating. That way, when we get into relational li- life and people are stretching us outside of our habits, we have, we have an island, we have something to check in with internally that allows us to see, oh, this, this is right, this is not right. Okay, this is not right and it's not been right for seven weeks. And, you, and, you, and, and through the practice, you, you, you're still, and you start to feel, oh, this has not been right. And then memory comes in, and oh, I remember one time I tried this. Right? So there's the wisdom part, right? One time I tried this, it didn't work. And trying it again, still doesn't work. I know I'm a fluid self. Michael told me that in the workshop. I sort of believe it. I read Derrida and Foucault, and they told me the same thing. But actually, this doesn't work for me. Yes? And then we're human beings, so then we we have to express that this doesn't work for me, and then in the expression of it, we find the self again. Yeah? And then there's a self in relationship to another self. And then in that relationship, there's enough of a boundary created that then we can forget about it. And then the fluidity comes back again but you can't have fluidity without those boundaries you see and this is the paradox you can't have freedom without the fence teenagers so 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 we open to these conditions as they are and we learn from these conditions And this is a kind of radical honesty, actually, and nonviolence. Back to ethics again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, but I, I just want to say one more thing about nonviolence, is that it's easy to sit here in this protected room and say, oh, yes, I, I'm, I'm nonviolent. Because it's, it's kind of easy to be nonviolent here. Well, if we were here for a month in this room, you, it would start to erupt. But, <laughs> um, but real nonviolence happens right at the edge of violence. Real nonviolence happens right at that precipice where um, our whole body is being called to, to express clearly what we're committed to. Otherwise, we do a violence to ourselves. And, and that's the real test of nonviolence. And the same is true with mindfulness. It's easy to be mindful on retreat when you're chopping carrots. You know? but, but where it really has to come through to, to change the patterns of our culture is t- to be mindful when we're angry and to be mindful when we want to go shopping to to shop away our loneliness and our sadness and discontent. This is when we need the mindfulness practice. Conditioned things break down, tread the path with care. One of the reasons I'm a bit of a stickler around posture is because I think that there's something that happens when you actually learn how to sit upright. The, the, this, this idea of trusting in oneself is not just trusting in some like like fluid smoke inside one'self that is like the, the, the place wisdom comes from, but actually to also trust in one's body and our ability to be upright and to, to hold a posture. And uh, so, so I think at this physical level, this, um, this really works on us. Uh, my, my son, last week, just started skateboarding. And so he, he's putting in like three, four-hour days practicing skateboarding. And um, he, he's, not, he's never really been into anything too physical. This is like his first... And just to watch his self-esteem um, expand as he becomes more agile with his body. We all see this with kids, right? It's, it's really incredible. Um, so, so this is something I think that happens in, in the posture also. This doesn't mean if you're lying in a hospital bed and you can't sit up, that, that somehow you can't find those resources. Of, of course that's not true. Um, but, but to find a posture where you can really start trusting in the body, even if the body's in pain, um, comes out of this attentiveness to breathing, and then we become an island unto ourselves. Not, I am a rock; I am an island. <laughs> but, but to understand, you know, that a rock or an island, at a, at a deep level, is a changing thing, and to trust in that change. This is really the heart of our, of our practice. Yeah. To, to trust in the way our relationships can change, our bodies are changing, um, the stories we have about ourselves can change. Yeah. Even your teenager can change. Maybe you just need to leave them alone and give them a really big pasture. Like what happens when you give teenagers a little responsibility. Yeah. And, and, and they screw it up a few times, and then they start to recognize um, the effect of their action. But you need to kick over the fence to know it's there. You know, the same is true on retreat. As, as soon as you start taking people on retreat who are new on retreat, they always do one thing on retreat to mess up the form. They, they sleep through a session. They skip a session. Or they spend like four days of the seven-day retreat thinking about how they're going to skip a session.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and then finally, they get the nerve. It's after lunch. They're tired. They, you know They're going to skip. And they skip a session. And they go, for the first 10 minutes, it feels amazing. Right? And then all the same clouded mind states come back again. They think, you know, I probably would have, you know, been able to work with what's going on better if I actually just went to the session. And then they start missing the people who are sitting while they're wandering around in the woods. And this is okay. This is okay. This is what we need to do. We need to push against the form sometimes to start to, to recognize what it leads to. And you might even feel this today. You know, here we are, we're at the end. Maybe you're starting to think, oh, I could just leave now and skip out on the rest of the day. And uh, all we're going to be doing is, walk- I could just go walk by myself. What I need to do is to walk by myself. Michael's talk gave me the confidence to go walk
0: by myself. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, but stay with the form. See what happens as you really trust in the form, the way you're starting to trust in your breathing, in your body. Okay. Any questions or comments? Really? Yes.
0: Earlier, I think today was you to mentioned something about big attachment versus small attachment. Yeah.
1: If you want me to say a little more about <laughs> <than> that, <laughs> um, yes. Um, so the words are raga and dvesha, um, attachment and aversion. And and attachment is is leaning into our experience, and aversion is leaning away from what's happening. And most of the time, um, we're aware in our lives of the big ones, because they're the places where we have the most the the largest symptoms, right? So, like if I ask you, you you know, where are your patterns of attachment and aversion, you'll describe, you know, something around whatever, an eating habit or a shopping habit or, you know, whatever, right? Where you're attached to your kid or... Well, those are the ones you know already. And so those are the ones you're probably working with, whether you know it or not. Those ones are not really the problem. But the main problem is that during the day, every second, the mind is doing this, liking things, not liking things, wanting things, not wanting things, liking this smell, not wanting that, looking at that, not wanting to look at that. And those little ones, over the hour, over the day, over the week, over the month, over the year, those are the ones that start to become exhausting. For therapists, when we have strong ideas about how therapy should be and how other people should heal and a strong attachment to the outcome, then when we're working with people, we're constantly having attachment because we feel they're making progress and then aversion when they're not making progress progress according to our idea. And that is what creates burnout. It's all those little likes and dislikes all day long, over the years, that burn us out. People don't burn out from working with people. People have burnout because of bad theory. Not bad theory, but attachment to their theory. That's what people burn out on. That they're burning out. When you, when you hear people talking during burnout about what's going on, that you know, I can't hear another story. If I hear someone else's story, I'm going to shoot myself, you know. Have you ever felt like this? Um, <clears throat> the, the reason is usually because we're attached to a certain way or a certain outcome for people. And, and so that's an example of the small attachments and diversions through the day. I could give many more examples, but that, that tire us out over time. So some people say, you know, what is, how does mindfulness help with the big ones? Well, well, that's obvious, I think. But what's less obvious is how attention every moment in our day you know, you know, keeps a kind of non-reactivity that works psychologically and physiologically to, to take care of the low-grade reactivity. Yeah. So if you think your mindfulness practice is more working out the big stuff every day, um, take a closer look and see how actually attention to the small things is actually what um, takes care of our chi or our prana, so that we're not exhausted. We're not tired. Yeah. Check in to see, do, do you finish your days tired? You know, at, at 8 o'clock, are you an exhausted person? You know, and, and really just check in to see, you know, what is the exhaustion? Is it, is it really that there was a big event in the day or three big events in the day or that you didn't get so much sleep last night? Or is it kind of like a low-grade low, low grade? Um, flickering, mm-hmm. that it was happening all day, that made you tired. A- and that's actually taken care of for those of you studying with me the Satipatthana Sutta, that, that's in the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Uh, um, gross and subtle mindfulness. But does that? Yes. yes. Yeah. Alicia? Back to the teenies that the teenager or the cow. <laughs> <laughs> yes.
0: As always happens when I hear you speak, as you're saying I'm like, oh yes, I get it, I get it. And then I start to think about it, I don't get it. So, and I, I have you know, I know what you're going to answer, but is the freedom within the pasture? Like when you say that you need the fence to have the freedom, that's that mean yeah. that you recognize when you get to the other side
1: of the fence that there's freedom, or that you can then come back in within? The the boundaries and have freedom. Both. Right. L- let's talk about it instead of talking about it from the teenager's <laughs> perspective, also <laughs> talking of you don't have teenagers yet.
0: Eleven. So Eleven. Yet. <laughs>
1: um, but from our perspective too. Like what's it like as a parent when you're when you, you don't put down clear boundaries? Yeah. Right? Out, out of your own fear of maybe expressing yourself. <laughs> right? This is what I was hinting at this morning around sometimes when when therapy, you know, big T therapy, doesn't put a foot down and say something about, for example, ethics, right? And and we're a little waffly. Um, As parents, we're not serving our kids, right? And so so, so the, the action of putting down the boundary, even though it's hard, is a way of raising ourselves, right? It's a way of creating a boundary in ourselves that allows us to be more free, which then will inspire them. Rather than thinking just about the external boundary, the creation of a fence also creates an internal um, hem, which is the island, you can't recognize an island unless it has a form. So so it's the giving... One of the ways we give form in our parenting is putting our foot down. And in doing so, we're committing to something ourselves also. And that that can change over time. Yeah. Um, uh, a, a girl... I, I, I was looking after a few kids, and, and the girl said, the ice cream truck came and, and this little girl ordered uh, a chocolate ice cream and then after the guy made it, she changed her mind and then said, no, I want a vanilla one, not a chocolate one. And the guy in the ice cream truck said, you can't change your mind. And then the girl said, my mother told me that a girl can change her mind. <laughs> The the guy in the ice cream truck loved it so much that he just tossed the ice cream. <laughs> hand. Yeah. So so to know with your kids too that that you make a boundary, it's firm, it it creates pasture, and it's conditional. So that, that it's not a rule. And it and it can change too. Yeah. And so and and the the the. The boundary should be related to the field. Um, this this is something I try and do with my son a lot. So, for example, let's say he's doing something that's you know that needs to be talked about, or, or you want to like, what's an example? Um, I ask him not to ride his bike um, through the alley one more time because he has to come in for dinner, and he gets on his bike. And he rides it through the alley. So, so I, the unconscious words that come to mind are: if you don't, if you don't uh, come in right now with your bicycle, then you know you can't watch a movie tonight. But a movie has nothing to do with what's going on with the bicycle. So, so what I try and do is is find a more creative solution, where the the you know, what gets talked about is related to riding the bike around the alley, you know, so, so if you don't come in now with your bicycle, then I can't trust you that you can ride your bike in the alley. It, it's connected to the act of bike riding. I, I'm not great at this, but it's what I try and do. But it's just an example of, like, we set up the fence, and the fence is related to the field. It creates structure for ourselves and for them, and... Then you can change it tomorrow, especially if you're a girl. <laughs> yeah. And and this is situational ethics. It's exactly what we were talking about this morning. Yeah.
0: So to re- I'm just thinking back to where this question came from. It was this idealization of how big my field should be? Yeah. So um, a kind of aspiration. Uh, In a given moment, to be able to manage a bigger field than, let's say, I can. Mm -hmm. So it it strikes me that it's it's about a certain level of profound self acceptance that doesn't turn Mm -hmm. into a story about Mm -hmm. this is the kind of person I am, always have been, will always be. But at the same time, really seeing where the limits of this moment are.
1: Yes. Yeah, in a more extroverted sense, how many people do you know who are out there changing the world, whose relationships are a mess, because they're out there changing the world? Remember yesterday, what do you call the world? How do you change the world? And the answer is, this is a good question, how do you change the world? And the response is so sharp, what do you call the world? And I don't want to say for one person, changing the world is you know, flying around, giving lectures on greenhouse gases. And they're doing more than someone else who's washing laundry. But at different phases of your life, how big your field is will, will change. Will change. This, this, this spring, I have uh, a lot of energy, and I'm traveling around. Then I take the summer off and I do little things in the garden, which is changing the world. Yeah. Tiny little things. So uh, I think all of us, our, our energy changes and we need to, to take care of that. You, you were gonna say? I, I was
0: just going to say, I was thinking of in smaller groups, you know, that, um, that perhaps I, I know someone who has a particular kind of need and today I know I cannot be there for them. Huh. Although I may have an ideal that I would always like to be available in a yeah. certain way. Yeah. But it's accepting that that's not in my... That's
1: not on the island today. <laughs> it's not on the island. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and if you did um, intellectually expand the island mm-hmm. to do that today, it'd probably be okay. But if you did that all the time because you have an ideal of how you're a helper, um, you will be in this workshop next year as an exhausted person. <laughs> yeah. Or you may not even be in this workshop because you may not even know you need it, <laughs> which is also what tends to happen. Yeah. Is there a hand up? It's OK. okay. We have time for one more comment or question. Yes.
0: I just I have a question about yearning. The Yearn. yearning that comes in addictive behaviors uh-huh. before you go for the whatever the substance or the process is that you're attached
1: to. Yeah. But I don't I don't understand uh, if you could just you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about that for now. I think there are different <laughs> levels of yearning. I think the primary level of yearning is um yearning to go home, to come home, yearning to feel like you're at home. And I think all of us, that's what we yearn for the most. We have like a homesickness or something, and we yearn, whether that comes through patterns of shopping or using heroin or uh, taking many lovers or whatever. I mean, everybody has their way of doing it, but what we yearn for in another person, what we yearn for in a nice dress, what we yearn for in the new car, is is a, 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 a intimacy, right? And the heroin addict is doing that. That they they they, they want a hit of connection. And um, secondly. Uh, another part of yearning is, is, is yearning for something uh, deeper than the stories that we tell ourselves. Some part of us existentially also wants to, to connect with something more than the stories we have about ourselves. Um, I think that's the basis of yearning. Yearning usually comes in the form of craving. And the way we bring craving to an end is with awareness. Awareness of craving. You can't feed craving some, something that will stop it. I talked about this, I think, yesterday with wanting. There is no object that you can give the energy of wanting that will stop it. The way you you bring the craving to an end is you just aware it. And as you aware the craving, the craving settles. As you aware yearning, the yearning settles. And then there is a good kind of yearning, which is recognizing uh, a possibility which we would call, I think in psychology, is called positive idealization. You're a trumpet player and you hear Miles Davis for the first time and it sets the bar and and you're inspired. And I think that kind of yearning is really healthy. Um, But that kind of yearning can then flow into the other kind of yearning where, you know, I want to be Miles Davis because I want to be famous. So we have to be very vigilant but but the key to working with yearning is awareness. Is awareness. Awareing the yearning. Bad grammar but it works somehow. Time's up. Okay. So here's what I'd like to do. Um, One period of walking meditation, and then we'll come back in, and then I want to go through with you how to develop a daily meditation practice. We'll just talk about the technique and what to do, and then we'll finish before 4 o'clock. Okay. So let's uh, stretch our legs, and then we'll uh, meet across the road or one period of walking, or those of you who are sit- who are inside, will walk inside.